This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Progressive, Counterspin, On the Media, The Young Turks, The Onion Radio News, Common Sense with Dan Carlin, The Majority Report, and NPR with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from markfiore.com. This weekend marks the 10th anniversary of the authorization for use of military force, the blank check that Congress wrote George W. Bush in response to the attacks of September 11th. It granted the president the authority to use all necessary and appropriate force against those nations, organizations, or persons he determines planned, authorized, committed, or aided the terrorist attacks of September 11th. Bush then used this sweeping authorization not only to attack Afghanistan, but to justify his detention policies in Guantanamo and even his illegal domestic spying. Now, 10 years later, the Pentagon is claiming that the president still has the right to go attack anyone affiliated with al-Qaeda, including foot soldiers of groups with only vague connections. Under this view, the U.S. could use drone strikes anywhere in the world against thousands and thousands of people. This would greatly broaden the policy of summary execution, yeah, let's call it what it is, that the Obama administration has been pursuing in Pakistan and Yemen. Republican members of Congress want to grant the president the statutory authority to do this. It's as though they've learned nothing from the overreach that the first authorization of military force prompted 10 years ago. The last thing any president needs is more unilateral authority to go kill people. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. Given the dramatic turn of events in Libya, it seems that some things can now be told. Take an August 24th New York Times report on the misinformation that's been circulating. The Times concluded there's been spin from all sides. Gaddafi's exaggerations are well known, but this passage jumped out to us. Quote, the rebels have offered their own far-fetched claims like mass rapes by loyalist troops issued tablets of Viagra. Although the rebels have not offered credible proof, that claim is nonetheless the basis of an investigation by the International Criminal Court. And there is the mantra, with racist overtones, that the Gaddafi government is using African mercenaries, which rebels repeat as fact over and over. There have been no confirmed cases of that. Supposedly, there are many African prisoners of war held in Benghazi, but conveniently, journalists are not allowed to see them. There are, however, African guest workers, poorly paid migrant labor, many of whom, unarmed, have been labeled mercenaries. Close quote. Well, if this misinformation sounds familiar, you might be a New York Times reader. On February 22nd, 23rd, and 24th, the Times reported about Gaddafi's legions of African mercenaries. On the 24th, reporting it as fact. That day, the Washington Post editors thundered against Gaddafi using foreign mercenaries against his own people. Two days earlier, ABC's Martha Raddatz reported of Gaddafi, quote, flying in cargo planes full of African mercenaries who don't even speak the language to do his dirty work, trained killers gunning down residents and protesters in cold blood, close quote. 
Some reporters, like the British Independent Patrick Coburn, bothered to point out the lack of evidence for much of this propaganda in real time. But for many U.S. outlets, the myths seemed to be too good to check out. Last Friday in Yemen, a U.S. drone strike killed two al-Qaeda targets, Anwar al-Awlaki and Samir Khan. The two were both unique figures in al-Qaeda. First, they were both Americans. Secondly, their command of English meant they could communicate directly with would-be radicals in the West. Khan was reportedly the editor of Inspire, the al-Qaeda English-language magazine, Al-Alaki worked in front of the camera through Internet sermons the government believed were designed to inspire militancy among Muslims here at home. Jared Brockman is the author of Global Jihadism, Theory and Practice, and has closely followed the way that Al-Alaki and Khan have gotten their message to the West. Jared, welcome back to OTM. Thanks. Are the deaths of these men a big blow to Al-Qaeda? It's devastating. I mean, Al-Alaki and Samir Khan had revolutionized the way that al-Qaeda was able to reach out and touch the West. And there's really nobody left on the bench that has what's taken those two decades of work to develop. For a long time, a lot of kids in the West who supported al-Qaeda still felt like they were playing second fiddle to their Arabic counterparts. They didn't have a lot of access or forums that they could kind of spout off in, and they weren't really valued within the al-Qaeda global movement. Al-Aki and Samir Khan changed all that. And what are they credited with achieving? They were able to inspire and direct numerous attacks. We have direct email correspondence between Alaki and Nidal Hassan, the alleged Fort Hood shooter. We have cases of, say, an individual who just watched Alaki's videos and took it upon herself to go out and stab a British member of parliament. We have directed attacks that Alaki was clearly involved with, uh, Omar Farouk Abdelmutalib, the alleged uh, underwear bomber, and, and numerous other examples of those kinds of you know, operational strikes. They came to these roles through very different paths. Tell me how they got to be where they got to be. Samir Khan saw himself as kind of a pseudo-intellectual. He developed kind of his propaganda skill set working out of his parents' home in Charlotte, North Carolina. For years, he was just posting online to these Islamic forums, and soon posting wasn't good enough, so he started his own blog. That wasn't good enough, so he started his own pro-Al-Qaeda media outlet here in the United States. That wasn't good enough, so he started making videos, and eventually he made his own English-language pro-Al-Qaeda magazine. You know, Samir Khan knew what it was like to be one of these kids who wanted to support Al-Qaeda, couldn't do it, and took it upon himself to change how the game was played. Tell me about Al-Alaki. How did he get to be sort of the Tokyo Rose of militant Islam? You know, if you go back and listen to a lot of his, his sermons... Virtually none of them have anything to do with violence, or at least openly espouse violence. What he does is provide a very distilled, back-to-basics understanding of Islam. Often, these sermons were in no way incendiary. Let's just uh, listen to him talking about obesity. Amr al-Khattab would encourage exercise, and he didn't like obesity. In fact, he said, beware of overeating. If you are overweight, 
even if it's caused by genetic reasons, try to lose weight. I should make it clear that while sometimes he was talking about obesity, a recurring theme was that Islam is under attack. Did he ever, though, issue orders, say you must act, you must defend Islam? No, the way Alaki would do this is he would let you do the math. He would present you with the problem. He'd say you're under attack, Islam is under attack. You have at your disposal an arsenal of tools you can employ. What are you going to do? Are you going to live up to your duty? Or are you going to sit back and let Islam be conquered? So people would feel more invested because they came to the conclusion themselves. He wasn't giving these command statements like Zawahiri bin Laden, shaking his finger at people, saying, you must do this. Because for his constituency, a lot of them hadn't bought off on the idea. A lot of them didn't support al-Qaeda, or at least weren't sure if they could. And so Alaki brought a lot of fence-sitters who otherwise may not have been interested in the al-Qaeda ideology over with him when he joined up. So I think this, this opens a, a massive chasm that will be almost impossible for al-Qaeda to fill. Well, that's an optimistic view. Others are less optimistic. What, what's the argument that says that these roles will be filled rapidly by others? I mean, I think the, the biggest counterargument is that the genie's already out of the bottle, right? That al-Laki's already flooded the Internet with his sermons. Khan has already produced now seven Inspire magazines plus a whole backlog of his previous magazine. And so the movement itself will fill that role. In many ways, you know, I make that argument myself, but I think in the absence of having a, a rallying figure like Alaki, it will quickly dissipate in terms of the coherence and lethality of that movement. Is there a precedent for targeting not just American citizens, but propagandists as opposed to guys with their fingers on triggers? It's a complicated question because not a lot of open source information has been released about the role that Al-Laki played operationally. So I think this is why you see the Obama administration calling him the chief of external operations as opposed to focusing on his propaganda role. By saying he was the main target, they kind of get themselves out of that question. Samir Khan, however, it seems to me was, was purely a propagandist. I think that's why the Obama administration is saying his death wasn't the focus, he just happened to be in the vehicle. This administration has showed that it's willing to take these kind of unprecedented steps in order to take out unprecedented individuals. Jared, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. Jared Brockman is the author of Global Jihadism, Theory and Practice. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be.
Forgive me while I don't cheer the assassination of Anwar al-Awlaki, the New Mexico-born cleric whom the United States just killed in Yemen. He was a U.S. citizen, after all. He'd never been indicted for a crime here, much less convicted, much less sentenced to death. And still the president just rubbed him out. We're told he was a high-ranking member of al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, and there's some evidence that his preachings influenced al-Qaeda terrorists, including a few on 9-11. So he's no angel, no doubt about that. But does that give the president the right to summarily execute a U.S. citizen? Obama asserts that right, not just to bump off al-Awlaki, but also other U.S. citizens, too. On what basis? And where does this stop? The ACLU and Glenn Greenwald have criticized the hit on al-Awlaki. So, too, is Ron Paul, much to his credit. He said, to start assassinating American citizens without charges, we should think very seriously about this. Yes, we should. The president has become judge, juror, and literally executioner. And that's not the way our system is supposed to work. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. Life tends to come and go. That's okay as long as you know. Life tends to come and go. As long as you know, no, 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 I won't share you. Under the August 30th headline, Nations Hope Veil Lifts from Libya's History of Terrorism, the New York Times' John Burns pondered what he called a question being asked with new urgency. Quote, Colonel Momar al-Qaddafi's government in ruins, what reckoning is likely for the terrorist bombings that were once a signature of the former Libyan leader's war with the Western world? Close quote. Burns mentions Pan Am Flight 103, the most prominent example, and the 1986 Berlin nightclub bombing that killed three people. But he doesn't acknowledge serious questions about culpability raised in both attacks or cite earlier Times reporting, noting the context of the Berlin bombings as retaliation, quote, against the sinking of two Libyan boats by the United States in the Gulf of Sirte, close quote. Which isn't to say that Gaddafi was innocent of these charges, and his rule in Libya was certainly marked by vicious attacks and repression inside the country. What's difficult to imagine is someone at the Times writing about how nations have clamored with urgency, as many have, for accountability for terrorist acts supported, linked to, or committed by George W. Bush or Ronald Reagan. It's not as if it would be difficult to point to their signature acts. Reagan's funding and support for death squads in Latin America, the massive aggressive war launched against Iraq, and the torture and prisoner death that occurred under Bush. But something tells us an analysis that applied similar standards to U.S. leaders as to official enemies would not be deemed news fit to print. The media consensus is that the Libya war is basically over and that the White House deserves credit. In the September 5th issue of Time, Fareed Zakaria writes that a lesson was learned from the Iraq debacle, the need to gather a real international coalition. Zakaria recalls that the Bush administration skipped this, failing to give weapons inspectors more time and treating some opposition to the war as petty legalistic annoyances. But this is the same Fareed Zakaria who, back in the day, was writing that it was time to get on with the war in Iraq and stop this weapons inspecting business. 
Don't get me wrong, 2002, Zakaria wrote with confidence, quote, Iraq is surely producing weapons of mass destruction, close quote. The only problem is, quote, Iraq has become increasingly expert at dispersing and hiding these facilities, which are often small enough to fit into a bathroom or a van, close quote. Zakaria stressed that time was short. If the war didn't start quick enough, the pressure for action will dissipate and weather could delay an invasion. And he warned, quote, you cannot replay this movie, close quote. Well, if only. Zakaria is not the only one revisiting Iraq. On ABC's This Week, pundit George Will was annoyed that Dick Cheney's new book doesn't include an apology for going to war under false pretenses. Well, okay, but this is the same George Will who wrote that Colin Powell's WMD presentation at the UN in 2003 would, quote, change all minds open to evidence, close quote, and likened anyone who doubted WMD claims to a conspiracy theorist. Luckily for people like Will and Zakaria, damaged credibility isn't a concern. They'll still be considered A-list foreign affairs pundits, as long as you forget what they wrote. I want to talk a little bit about Ron Paul, a little bit about the way Republicans view our country and their, their place in the world and their responsibility and their elitism. Uh, let's listen, uh, please, to this is clip four. This is Ron Paul talking about al-Qaeda. The purpose of al-Qaeda was to attack us, invite us over there where they can target us. And they have been doing it. They have more attacks against us and the American interests per month than occurred in all the years before 9-11, but we're there occupying their land. And if we think that we can do that and not have retaliation, we're kidding ourselves. We have to be honest with ourselves. What would we do if another country, say China, did to us what we do to all those countries over there? So, you know, when you hear Ron Paul sometimes, like, yeah, this guy is, uh, this guy knows what he's talking about. I'm gonna read more about this guy. I wanna support Ron Paul. And then you read about other things he says, um, and you hear him on health care, and you hear him on Israel, and you hear him in other ways talking about uh, issues that affect us every day, and you say you want to stay away from him. But, you know, he is deviating, and he got applause for it from um, a sort of a Republican maxim there uh, in saying that somehow uh, al-Qaeda is, um, you know, that, that our being there is inciting more. Uh, whereas you would think that four years ago when George Bush and John McCain were talking about the furtherance of presence and the, and the, and staying over there and, and, and increasing our presence and surging. Remember surges? Remember we had a surge and the surge saved the world? Remember the surge in Iraq? How, oh, Iraq is just going to be this democracy because George Bush finally got it and we had the surge and look how great things are going.
Uh, well, uh, you know, it's interesting to see this at play now in front of Republicans. What do they want? It is impossible to see moment to moment what makes Republicans tick, what they're looking for in a candidate, uh, and what the right thing to say is at a Republican debate. I, I, the only sympathy I have for these people running for the Republican nomination is I don't know what the people in the audience want to hear. Let's listen now to uh, our old friend um, Rick Santorum uh, talk <coughs> with Ron Paul. This is clip number five. And we were not attacked because of our actions. We were attacked, as Newt talked about, because we have, a, we have a, a civilization that is antithetical to the civilization of the jihadist. And they want to kill us because of who we are and what we stand for. And we stand for American exceptionalism. We stand for freedom and opportunity for everybody around the world. And I am not ashamed to do that. 30 seconds, uh, Mr. Paul. As long as this country follows that idea, we're going to be under a lot of, a lot of danger. This whole idea that the whole Muslim world is responsible for this and they're attacking us because we're free and prosperous, that is just not true. Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda have been explicit. They have been explicit and they wrote and said that we attacked, we attacked America because you had bases on our holy land in Saudi Arabia. You do not give Palestinians a fair treatment and you have been bombing. I didn't say that. I'm, I'm trying to get you to understand what the motive was. Yeah, I mean, uh, they're booing and applauding. It's just confusing what they want to hear. Um, you know, I love how Rick Santorum talks about American exceptionalism, and that's and our freedoms. Our freedoms if you are white, insured, and straight according to Rick Santorum. That's what I'm able to infer uh, from the way he has lived his legislative life and his rhetorical life and the way he is running for president. Uh, that is what I am able to glean from everything Rick Santorum says. So it's not about our freedoms. Uh, it's about how he perceives our freedoms to be, the idealistic way. But the fact of the matter is that these were 19 rogues who perpetrated a horrendous uh, act on America. They were governed and led by some crazy people with money and power and persuasion and there was a network of them and they it wasn't because of our way of life it was because of our presence over there uh, and it wasn't entirely because of we enjoy a freedom over here and it was not entirely over envy there is nuance here it is not everybody who is Islamic either The mission of this show is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media, and now you can play a critical role in helping fulfill that mission. I pick out the best clips I hear to share with you, and now you can do just the same thing extremely easily. Now available at bestoftheleft.com, each clip I play is made available individually with simple buttons that allow you to share your favorites on your networks through Facebook, Twitter, by email, and beyond. By myself, I can amplify this content to thousands of people, but collectively, we have the potential to reach millions. No kidding. Become your own media activist by taking one minute to share your favorite content a couple of days each week, help more people plug into the truly liberal media, and be an integral part of this extremely virtuous cycle. Thanks so much for your help. It's the Onion Radio News. Area neighbors protest treehouse acquisition of M80 technology. This is Doyle Redland reporting. 
Alarm spread through the Parkland Terrace neighborhood today when word got out that unstable elements within the community had acquired M80 technology. The formerly placid suburb now lives in all-consuming fear that the loud explosive devices may actually be put to use. Parkland Terrace resident William Gray. The threat of sidewalks littered with G.I. Joe limbs is very real on this street. Anonymous sources claim the neighborhood arms race began in earnest back in 1998 when the Henderson boys imported advanced super soaker technology. Doyle Redland for the Onion Radio News online. Think of what I'm saying. We can work it out and get it straight or say goodnight. We can work it out. We can work it out. Life is very short and there's no time for fussing and fighting, my friend. Glenn Greenwald had an interesting piece uh, on Monday. Two American hikers, you, I'm sure you heard this story, two American hikers had been imprisoned by the Iranians for more than two years on, which is not terribly surprising, very dubious espionage charges and highly oppressive conditions. Uh, their names Joshua Fatel and Shane Bauer. They were released last week. They spoke on Sunday in Manhattan at a press conference. You've read these media accounts of how Iran is evil, how we are good, how this is an example of an oppressive regime. But what most media accounts have omitted, as Glenn Greenwald uh, points out, is the description by Fatel of the horrible conditions of prison that they, um, they were held in. He explained that of everything that was done to them, quote, solitary confinement was the worst experience of all our lives. Think back to Bradley Manning, kept in solitary confinement for a year. Think back to Jose Padilla, solitary confinement with earmuffs and black glasses over his face so he couldn't see anything. He noted that they were imprisoned due, uh, due solely to what he called the 32 years of mutual hostility between America and Iran. And he said, the irony is we oppose U.S. policies toward Iran, which uh, perpetuate this host, uh, hostility. After complaining that the two court sessions they attended were total shams, military commissions, Gitmo trials, we're going to find these people guilty anyway. Does that ring a bell? And that quote, we've been hold, held in almost total isolation, stripped of our rights and freedoms, he explained, and then he went on to say this. In prison, every time we complained about our conditions... The guards would immediately remind us of comparable conditions at Guantanamo Bay. They would remind us of CIA prisons in other parts of the world and the conditions that Iranians and others experience in prisons in the U.S. We do not believe that such human rights violations on the part of our government justify what has been done to us, not for a moment. However, we do believe that these actions on the part of the U.S.
However, we do believe that these actions on the part of the U.S. provide an excuse for other governments, including the government of Iran, to act in kind. Which, of course, is what every expert on torture, which is what the military personnel say, uh, which is what civil libertarians say in this country, it has been said over and over again. Yet, we cannot talk about this because there's too much time being spent as to whether uh, a uh, half-term, mildly, barely popular governor from New Jersey may enter into the race only to lose and leave it the day after New Hampshire. That is what is so effed up about our media. So think about that the next time you are uh, forced to listen to whether or not Chris Christie is going to decide to run for president. Why isn't our media paying attention to those words and the implications of that in terms of civil liberties? It's just simply not convenient. It doesn't fit with the narrative. How much can you fit under your skin? How much can you fit under your skin? Hey, Lewis, what's the best reason if you could tell someone who listens to Jay Tomlinson's Best of the Left podcast to tune into our show? What, what's, what would you say to them? Uh, I would say that uh, our, our view of things is among the best of, of the left. Our view is the best. Like, our view, what kind of view? What does that mean? Our worldview. Which consists of what? Pretty much everything. <laughs> but what's, like, one thing? What could people expect to hear if they tune in? Uh, let's see. It's not clear, is it? It's not. Anything goes. Anything goes on the show. Pretty much. Well, if that doesn't make you curious, I don't know what will. Check out The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. I want to start this program off talking about truth. Those of you who've listened to me for a long time know that I've always had this sort of obsession, this love-hate relationship with this concept, and using air quotes with my fingers, of the truth. When I was a kid, one of the earliest times I remember being frustrated by this whole question of the truth involved my search for King Arthur. And my mom was doing a film in Britain when I was a, you know, four or five, six years old, whatever I was, and I became obsessed with the romantic myth of King Arthur and began trying to figure out if this was true. I wanted it to be true. And I was in Britain, so there was, you know, research available. Long story short, when someone seeks truth in a myth, they are destined to be disappointed. My connection to truth has been full of disappointments. I remember when I was um, 17 or 18, first becoming really politically aware and involved. I wrote an article and I sent it off to some newspapers around where I lived in Los Angeles. And it was entitled, The Death of Objective Truth. And the whole concept here, it's a very 17-year-old or 18-year-old kid sort of concept, is that there used to be truth and truth has gone away. And the Gordian knot that is preventing us from fixing the problems we face is that, you know, truth isn't here, right? I always love that quote from the Bible, and the truth shall set ye free, or John Lennon's line, just give me some truth, and you think that this is going to be a panacea. And I wrote this article, and you send it out, and no one picks up on it, and you think, well, what's the problem? It occurs to me now that there might have been quite a few snickers among the people who read that article and who were older than I was and who had come to a place in their life where they figured out the way of the world when it comes to truth. Truth is an extremely rare commodity. 
Even when you think you have truth, you probably don't. In my article, I had said that, you know, the real problem is we can't ever get past the arguing over whose facts are correct when you have a political discussion, right? Democrats and Republicans in the late 1980s are having a discussion over policy. The whole thing was just evolving into a question of, you know, the other guy's facts or the other gal's facts. One person would be using the facts in the New York Times, which would be different from the facts in the New York Post. And, you know, you never got to the discussion on the political issue. You were too busy arguing over whether you could trust the Post's facts or whether you could trust the Times facts. So, in my younger days, I considered the fight to be over a question of truth. Get the message out, show people the way things really are, and the solutions will follow. Many of you... Many of you are critical, by the way, but many of you have um, heard me say that we have way too much secrecy in the United States government right now. Way too much. I would cut the stuff down to 90% of what it is now. Just go down to the bare 10% that's really required. And the whole thinking behind that is if people could see what was going on, they would have a more realistic version of the world around them, which would cause them to you know, alter their opinions to more closely match the reality of the situation, right? And keeping secrets from the American people and the rest of the world prevents us from seeing the world as it really is. So we get to live in our fantasy world and not know the way it really is. Now, let me just take an aside for a minute and talk about something Tony Bennett, yes, the 85-year-old singer Tony Bennett, said the other day. You know, when I emerged from the hardcore history edit room cave, I have all these stories that have been piling up since the last show. And I kind of look at them and... I don't even know what's, I mean, you know, they just look like this strange pile of specific stuff I couldn't possibly get granular with right now. But there was this Tony Bennett story among a couple of them. And for those of you who aren't familiar what happened the other day with Tony Bennett during an interview on the Howard Stern show, but they started talking a little about the 9-11 terror attacks. Now, it makes sense since it was like the anniversary of 9-11. And Tony Bennett took the line that a lot of other people, both from the right and the left and all over the political map and all over the world, have said, which is essentially that attack did not just arrive out of the blue. Let me read you a little of the ABC News story I have on this, but, you know, it was everywhere. Um, from the middle of the piece, quote, Howard Stern then asked Bennett about how the United States should deal with terrorists, specifically those responsible for the 2001 attack on the World Trade Center. But who are the terrorists? Are we the terrorists or are they the terrorists? Two wrongs don't make a right, Bennett said. In a soft-spoken voice, the singer disagreed with Stern's premise, the story says, that the 9-11 terrorist actions led to U.S. military involvement in Iraq and Afghanistan. Quote, they flew the plane in, but we caused it, Bennett responded, because we were bombing them and they told us to stop. End quote. Now, Bennett was a combat vet in the Second World War. He wasn't like some rear echelon guy. He was on the front lines. And he said in the Stern interview that the first time he saw a dead German, he became a pacifist. But he also said that a lot of the guys he was with didn't want to kill anybody. And that part of the problem is the weaponry is just so powerful that it's kind of like, I'm putting words into his mouth now, but kind of like a meat grinder. And anybody who gets caught in the way just gets ground up. You couldn't try to protect people sometimes if you wanted to once the you know fighting was really going. Now, Bennett had to apologize a couple days after the Stern appearance, maybe the day afterwards. He had to apologize because some people obviously took what he said to somehow imply that what happened on 9-11 was deserved. 
In other words, if you point out cause and effect, that's the same as pointing out blame. But it's not. First of all, the number of people that have openly, you know, said what's obvious, and that is that 9-11 doesn't happen if we're not in the Middle East. If there's no oil in the Middle East, if there's no Israel to worry about, if the Middle East is like, you know, the Central African nations right now in our consciousness, nobody attacks us on 9-11 because they hardly have any contact with us at all. We're over there. There's your cause for the effect that happened. Now, does this legitimize the effect that happened? Heck no. Killing civilians is not legitimate. Whether they're American civilians, Jewish civilians, or Islamic civilians. We've somehow forgotten this, by the way. We can kill children now all the time, and no one ever says, you know, we're killing children. I mean, it's just implied that this is somehow okay. Doesn't matter if the children are American, Middle Eastern, European, African. Where have our values gone, right? So no one is saying that those 3,000 people deserve to die. No one is calling that anything but what it is, a crime against humanity. But it didn't happen in a vacuum. And if you can't see the cause and effect, how can you get any closer to truth? I mean, imagine that President Bush, after 9-11, had stood up in one of his public comments, and instead of saying what he said, which, judging from the comments below the ABC News story, tons of people still believe, which is that the terrorists attacked us out of the blue because, as he said, they hate our freedom. Instead, what if he'd gotten up there and say, look, this is the natural reaction. We kind of expected some sort of an attack for a while. We realized that, you know, you can't go in and be a geopolitical player in that region without stepping on toes. And that eventually, you know, these are serious people. If you step on their toes long enough, they're going to try to find a way to step on yours. That's human nature. There's nothing controversial about that. There's nothing that says, oh, God, okay, well, those 3,000 people, I guess, deserve to die. I wish it had been, maybe if it had been 40,000, they deserve to die. None of them deserve to die. Stuff happens. But we don't make their deaths any more worthy by pretending like, you know, the stuff that happened had nothing to do with the attack. It's like saying that the Marine barracks victims who got killed in the suicide attack back in the early 80s in Lebanon, the Marines, that when the Marine barracks were blown up and French soldiers died too. It's like saying that, well, it was just random and out of the blue. No, it wasn't. They were in Lebanon. What are they doing there? So these kinds of things happen, but if we can't even talk about the reality of the situation, you're not going to get any nearer to truth at all. So this is the kind of thing that drives Dan Carlin crazy, were he here instead of in the editing booth. Here's the thing, though. I think that my premise has always been somewhat flawed. I think this idea I have that if we could just get to the truth, results would start to follow, that this is a Gordian knot blocking reform and everything else. If we could just get on the same page, we could move forward. I don't think so anymore. This time I'm gonna stay right here. This time I'm gonna stand right here in the truth. In my truth. Above the ground without a net, you got 
This week marks the 10th anniversary of the Afghan war and the costs just continue to mount. We've lost more than 1,700 soldiers there, and August was the most lethal month ever. Things aren't getting better for us in this long war, nor are they getting better for the Afghan people. U.S. forces have killed thousands of Afghan civilians, and for all the carnage, the Taliban still controls vast amounts of territory. The financial price tag keeps mounting on us, too, even as our economy at home is sputtering and our budget deficit is growing. Just counting the out-of-pocket costs, the Afghan war has run up a $500 billion tab so far, and the Pentagon is burning through $2 billion more a week there right now. Plus, these figures don't even account for all the money we need to spend on our 10,000 wounded soldiers. A large majority of the American people understands that the costs are way too high and that we should get out of there starting now. But the Obama administration wants to stay even longer, even beyond 2014 when Obama himself vowed to get us out of there. General John Allen, the commander of U.S. forces in Afghanistan, just announced that we're actually going to be there for a long time. This is a lethal switcheroo, and we must pressure Obama to end the war now. That's why I'm in Washington today with thousands of other protesters. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as 5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Ten years ago this week, the U.S. went to war in Afghanistan. And today, here are some things we can say about attitudes toward that war and the war in Iraq. Most Americans aren't paying attention. And about a third of the men and women who've served in the military since 9-11 don't think the wars were worth it. Those are just some results of a new survey by the Pew Research Center. As NPR's Tom Bowman explains, civilians and members of the military view war and service in very different ways. The Pew Center talked to nearly 4,000 people split almost evenly between military veterans and civilians. Study editor Paul Taylor wanted to explore this unique moment in American history. We've never had sustained combat for a full decade, and we've never fought a war in which such a small share of the population has carried the fight. Just half of 1% of Americans have served on active duty during the last decade. Compare that to the 9% who wore the uniform during World War II. Americans still hold the military in the highest regard. Signing up for the military is another matter. More than 80% of veterans would recommend a military career to a young person close to them. Among civilians, that number drops to about half that. Civilians are much more ambivalent about military service. Again, Paul Taylor of the Pew Center. They recognize that uh, there are burdens born, and frankly, they don't 
necessarily want their kith and kin and folks close to them to bear those burdens. Should the American people be troubled by that? Is the military becoming a separate part of American society? There is a gap. Whether or not this is a good or a bad thing is, is in effect, frankly, above my pay grade. It's an interesting question. And that question was posed to veterans. Eight in ten say the American public doesn't understand the problems faced by those in the military or their families. Those civilians polled acknowledge that soldiers and their families make a lot of sacrifices, but only one quarter see that as unfair. A large majority of civilians see it as just being part of the military. Another sign of disconnect, the public isn't paying much attention to Afghanistan or Iraq. About 25% say they're following the wars closely. That's dropped in half from a few years ago. That comes as no surprise to some service members. Marine Sergeant John Mulder is one of them. Back in June, he was patrolling in Afghanistan when he spoke with NPR about the lack of interest back home. We're starting to fall to the wayside because it's been going on for so long. I mean, hell, you know, it's America's longest conflict running to date. Kind of like the, the, bastard, the bastard children of our generation. Sergeant Mulder is part of a small fraction of Americans who serve. And that troubles Martin Cook, a civilian professor of military ethics at the Naval War College. It becomes much more easy to deploy U.S. forces in tough environments for long periods of time because the vast majority of Americans don't feel they have any skin in the game. I mean, I've often speculated, could we have fought wars for 10 years if this was a drafty army? And I doubt it. The strategy of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan is another cause for disagreement between civilians and veterans. It's the question of nation-building. That's everything from constructing schools in Iraq and Afghanistan to training and equipping their militaries. 59% of veterans support this. Just 45% of the civilians do. Paul Taylor of the Pew Center says civilians likely focus on the billions of dollars spent to rebuild places like Afghanistan. Troops focus less on the money and more on the results. The troops who are actually over there see the value of the military strategy that one goes hand in hand with the other. And the troops likely see nation building as a faster way home from war, a war that even veterans are growing tired of, according to the Pew study. It is notable that the warriors, uh, uh, after 10 years of battle, are ambivalent at best about the whole enterprise that they've been engaged in. About one-third of veterans say neither war was worth fighting. Tom Bowman, NPR News, Washington. When a federal appeals court ruled recently that the 17-year sentence levied against Jose Padilla was too lenient, ABC News identified him as, quote, often referred to as the Al-Qaeda dirty bomber, close quote. CNN's website explained that Padilla was, quote, convicted in a dirty bomb plot, close quote. 
Never mind that Padilla was never charged with, much less convicted of, anything to do with a dirty bomb. As Salon columnist Glenn Greenwald pointed out, media who mindlessly repeat the villain nickname given Padilla by John Ashcroft, despite its lack of connection to reality, perfectly serve the interests of those who would prefer that the reality of Padilla's case be unexplored. As Greenwald recounts, Padilla was an early victim of the War on Terror, arrested in 2002, and kept in solitary confinement for more than three years without charges, denied any outside contact, including with a lawyer, abused and tortured, officials lost the videos of his interrogations, finally indicted on charges unrelated to the ones originally brought, and convicted in a trial fraught with malfeasance. And the whole thing shrouded in secrecy and immunity by first the Bush Justice Department and then Obama's. But don't expect a serious discussion of the U.S. justice system from a press corps that prefers villains with nicknames. The U.S. is leaving a trail of torture behind its occupations in Afghanistan and Iraq, and it's a disgrace. The New York Times this morning led with this charming story. Detainees are hung by their hands and beaten with cables, and in some cases, their genitals are twisted until the prisoners lose consciousness at sites run by the Afghan Intelligence Service and the Afghan National Police, according to a U.N. report. Well, I checked out that report, and it mentioned that some of the torture was even inflicted on children, and it said that the torture was systemic. This is what's going on in Afghanistan after 10 years of our war and hundreds of billions of our dollars. Systemic torture going on at the hands of the very forces we've been supposedly training to take over for us. And similar atrocities have been committed by the Iraqi authorities. Last year, Human Rights Watch reported that detainees in a secret Baghdad detention facility were hung upside down, deprived of air, kicked, whipped, beaten, given electric shocks, and sodomized. These hideous reports put the lie to the flimsy rationales that the U.S. went to Iraq and to Afghanistan to uphold human rights. Brutality was there when we arrived. We brought brutality, and we're leaving brutality as a token, I suppose, of our appreciation. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. This, uh, I got this uh, e- email last week from listener NB. He said, a friend of mine posted an article on Facebook about the WikiLeaks cable exposing the execution of a family, including children, in Iraq in 2006. This was subsequently covered up by the U.S. government. After some back and forth with a right-winger who said he'd like to turn that region into glass... 
I said to him, I don't like radical Muslims either. Do you think it's possible for an infant to be a radical Muslim? And this is the guy's reply. This will sound about as inhuman as anything you have heard and maybe anything I have said. <laughs> you know, if you um, feel you need to preface something with that, maybe you should stop yourself. That's think, even worse than I'm not racist, but... Right. <laughs> this will sound about as inhuman as anything you have heard or maybe anything I have said. They are a radical Muslim, speaking of this baby, in the making. So if we kill just the parents and leave the children, this is an innocent parents too, we should say, we have stripped them of their parents and now they have a real reason to want to kill us. Other than a difference in spiritual belief. Who is going to take care of them? You and Gitmo? How many of our men and women, like Justin, this is a soldier who was also in on the conversation, would it take to babysit bastardized children and relocate the millions of them around the world? Millions of displaced children. War is hell. It's awful. And I don't disagree with that, but to me, is an abortion that came, it's an abortion that came way too late. <clears throat> like Justin, I care for the safety of my family, my countrymen, my country, and nothing more than those things. Do I want to know about it when it happens? Absolutely not. Tad Justin's statement about the war, not only should D.C. stay out of the fight, the press should too. You and me need only know that we can travel to work every day and back safely. How our military provides the means to do that is not my business. This is so warped and twisted that I, it's almost too hard to contextualize. NB wrote, since then I've thought of a good response to this, namely that he is a coward who is willing to let others do the dirty work and have to live with himself. It's so far beyond that. He is, of course, a coward. He can't even accept the moral responsibility, never mind the actual practical responsibility. He can't even accept the obligation of seeing what's being done in his name. He can't, but ultimately buried in this is the absolutely fundamental conservative worldview. I will let someone else pay for what I have. I will go through life living in such a way so that I don't have to see the genuine expense of it. I will create all these externalities. This is no different than when a corporation poisons the river or poisons the air and allows some baby to get asthma or some infant to get a, uh, or some, some uh, kid to have a birth defect. This guy will poison and kill children. And the only issue is, don't remind me that's what I'm doing. Don't remind me that I'm part of that. I mean, if he didn't even have to justify it, take the moment to justify it, to come up with the complete fabrication and fiction that it's okay to kill civilians because their children may end up being uh, threats to, to my children. 
which is, of course, a complete fiction. If he didn't even have to bother to come up with that fiction, he'd be that much happier. So deluded. This is the Republican, conservative, Tea Party, whatever you want to call it, mindset. Do not let a shred of doubt about the way I live my life and how it impacts others to enter into my mind. And I will listen to Limbaugh so that he can remind me that three hours a day. And I can watch Fox TV so that they can make sure that I live in this hermetically sealed bubble where I have to have no sense of the implications of how destructive my ideology is. The fact of the matter is, it's impossible to go through life as a human being and not create some havoc for other people or the environment or future generations or other animals. It's impossible. We simply cannot live like that with as many human beings as there are on the planet. It's just impossible. But we owe those other people, those future generations, the other live beings on the planet, at least, at least to think about it, to weigh out each one of those decisions every time we make them, as to the implications it will have on everything else in the world. Not just our family, not just our town, not just our country, but all of humanity, all of the world. We can't always make a decision that is going to benefit those people. We're not always going to make a decision that isn't going to harm those people. But we need to think about it. You know, whether it's, should I have an Amazon link up there when I know Amazon's not a particularly helpful company? At the very least, at the very least, we are obligated to think about these things. But to be a conservative means I choose whatever's going to keep me from thinking about it, whether it's a fundamentalist view of the world. That's what makes them no different than those extremists that they bemoan. Because at the end of the day, once you choose to live by a rigid ideology, that means you don't have to think about anything anymore. This is where all roads lead to. Because there's no moral value to your killing of these innocent children and not wanting to know about it than those, innocent, those extremists killing innocent children. I'm sorry. Just because you pay taxes to have somebody else do it and won't even bother to contemplate the action, actually beg, beg, so that you don't have to contemplate the action, 
don't go around thinking that you have some type of moral high ground here because you don't. You're willingly, desperately signing up for a program that, in which you know innocent people will be killed and you don't even want to know about it. Hi, this is Zach from Detroit. Um, I was just listening to the religion uh, episode and, and some of your comments, and I just had a couple of thoughts. Um, the first one is it, it's worthwhile kind of thinking about what the goal is of the Best of the Left podcast. And I know that the mission statement uh, about amplifying and aggregating and everything, but I mean, who is the target audience on kind of a broader level? Um, I think most people listening generally agree with you because people don't listen to podcasts that have their mind changed quite often. But I think sometimes the clips are shared in a way where they're trying to reach people who don't agree. And that's really one of the most valuable things because you can change people's mind. And I think that's where some of the religious um, commentary or anti-religious commentary can be kind of counterproductive. Because especially in America, um, a lot of conservatives are conditioned to believe conservative, Christian, that goes together. If you're going to be a liberal, you must be an atheist. You're, those schools of thought are totally separate. But if you really think about what Christianity is supposed to be about, um, it really is much more compatible with a liberal point of view. Um, just think about it. I mean, capitalism says greed is good. Well, the Bible says you can't love both God and money, or you can't serve both God and money. Um, Christianity um, says uh, whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me. And that's Jesus talking. Um, whereas capitalism says rugged individualism, you know, you're on your own. A lot of conservative Christians want to legislate morality, whereas the Bible says men look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart, which means if you pass all these laws to make people, quote-unquote, be good, well, it doesn't really matter because it's just this artificial thing. It's all about the free will and, and choosing to, to do something. So um, to me, my uh, religion, because I am a Christian, informs my politics and I think that liberal politics or, or leftist podcasts, or leftist uh, politics are much more compatible with the Christian way of thinking than conservative, no matter what you know our culture says. So all this just to say, I think that when you're talking to somebody who doesn't agree with your uh, politics, it can be really counterproductive to do these unnecessary religious critiques as well. It's sort of like, well, if you can be liberal and Christian, then what's the point in going after the religious side? It's you know sort of like, I'm going to try to convince you to change your way of thinking, but before we get started, your mom is stupid. You know, it's like totally off topic, not helpful. You know, of course, I'm not saying that it's wrong for you to, to do the commentary or anything. However you want, it's fine. But I'm just saying from a practical standpoint, it does make it harder, especially for these Christians who are kind of preconditioned to say, well, anything liberal must be atheist, and this is just sort of a, a confirmation of what they've been conditioned. Like, oh, okay, see... And it, it makes it a lot harder for people to change their mind. Anyway, love the podcast. Uh, keep them coming. Thanks. Bye. Hey, Jay. This is Lynn calling from St. Paul, Minnesota. I'm calling in regards to the food episode you had a little while back, and specifically regards to the Snarkopedia clip you played. 
Um, kind of talked about how um, there's GMO alfalfa that's been approved and how that was passed. I just wanted to comment on a couple things. First and foremost, it talked about how GMO would be infiltrating the family farmer's food uh, crop supply and how that was, you know, she just assumed that that would be organic. And I just wanted to point out that 98% of all farms in America are family farms and they account for 86% of agricultural output in this country. And we all know that that is not all organic, so there's a large portion of those farmer, family farmers who are growing conventional agriculture, just like my father does. Um, they also specified why, um, never specified why GMOs are bad for you. Um, it just kind of said, oh, GMO alpha has been approved. This is terrible, and never really backed that up. Um, actually, out of every Department of Agriculture um, across the world that has done research into whether or not GMOs are in some way bad for you or organics are in any way better for you, they found that they are exactly the same and that none, neither one is healthier than the other. So I believe this is an area where the science community just needs to be a lot more proactive with the public relations and get the facts out there so we can uh, have a better debate, just like with the climate change issues. Um, I did really appreciate the concerns they raised about monocultures in our food supply. I believe that's a dangerous problem to have and makes us vulnerable. And they rightfully pointed out that Monsanto is kind of a terrible company. So that's just my two cents. Thanks for the show. I love it, Jay, and keep up the good work. See ya. Bye. Hey, Jay, this is Perry from Greene County, Indiana, and I'd like to leave an activist call to action. It's been several weeks since the last of 1,253 people got out of jail in Washington, D.C. at the end of two weeks of civil disobedience to stop the Keystone XL tar sands pipeline. As regular listeners of Best of the Left know, the Keystone tar sands pipeline, if built, will be game over for the climate. Obama now holds a significant portion of our planet's carbon future in his hands. No action from Congress is required, so we need to bring pressure on him now. If Obama is speaking near your community, show up and tell him to stop the Keystone's, Keystone Tar Sands Pipeline. And if you can, please show up in Washington, D.C. on November 6th. Exactly one year before his election on November 6th, we're trying to bring together a massive rally to encircle the White House with protesters holding signs to remind Obama of his campaign promise to heal the planet. We're not sure we have the thousands of people it will take to surround the White House, so Tim Christopher, Bill McKibben, and the rest of us need your help now. For more information, please Google tarsandsaction.org, and thank you. Hey, Jay, it's Jeff, the South Florida policeman. Uh, just wanted to apologize that this is really late, but uh, in reference to the Mumia Abu Jamal uh, being used in the death row episode, that's actually one of the few times I think it's actually applicable. Applicable. He's got expertise in that area that no one else does. What I oppose is his use in every other situation, giving a person who's convicted and sentenced for a heinous crime, killing a policeman who was laying on his back, way to participate in society. I think part of his punishment is not being able to participate in society and allowing him to participate in other debates kind of undermines that punishment. But on this certain circumstance, I happen to think that it makes sense. He's got knowledge where other people don't. All right. That's my two cents for what it's worth. Thanks, man. Bye. 
thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So first of all, thanks to Jeff for calling in with that clarification. I would have been stunned out of my mind if he had said anything other than exactly what he did say, but obviously I didn't want to make any assumptions, so I'm glad he uh, called in and clarified for us. And then secondly, today, while I was making this show... Uh, our president, President Obama, uh, sent me an email, presumably because he knew that I had a deadline today and he wanted to get me this message but so I could talk about it in the show, saying that uh, we were going to be withdrawing, quote, all of our uh, troops from Iraq before the end of the year. So I thought that was nicely timed for uh, for a you know foreign policy show such as this. I, I literally have no information other than that single email um, that I received. I haven't heard anyone talk about it. I haven't heard anyone dissect it. Uh, it, it doesn't sound like uh, like part two of when we, you know, ended the war and withdrew our troops. Except that meant that the war wasn't really over and not all of our troops were coming home. You know, it it sounded more definite than that. Um, so hopefully that is the case. It, you know, I uh, for for the moment. I will not uh, not make any assumptions about this not being as good as it sounds and, and just hope uh, that it really is as good as it sounds. So maybe by the end of the year, all the troops will be out of Iraq and the war will actually be over. Here's hoping. So that's it for today. I'm just going to thank a couple of members as I always do. Donald A. signed up for a Leftist Monthly membership back on February 17th and has stuck with the show since then. And Kevin G. signed up on March 10th, uh, also as a leftist, but uh, signed up for a full year in advance. So huge thanks to Donald and Kevin and all the members and donors who helped make the show possible. I, I mean, while they don't just help, they literally make the show possible. I couldn't do it without them. Uh, so thanks to all of them. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and by spreading the word of individual clips online. It is so easy. Uh, you won't be able to believe it. Uh, you can spread uh, individual clips through social media or email or anything else uh, you can imagine. All the details are right there on the website in the show notes. You can stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and also donating your Facebook and Twitter accounts to us to help us spread the word. Uh, that way, details on that are through the Donate Your Account badge on the site. You can't miss that either. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shiny sheet The only maker that you wanna need A dying man in your living room Who shadow bases the floor Who take you out in the open door This is not my life just a fond farewell to a friend